This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. We've been talking about the book of Revelation over the last few months. And we've entitled this series, The Rest of the Story. Because that's what it is. It is the rest of the story. As I told you before, I'm a news junkie. And I caught myself saying this just the other day. As I was running through the headlines and reading the stories. I caught myself saying, what is this world coming to? You caught yourself saying that? Maybe you've said it out loud in a group or in conversation. Maybe you thought it and you said, what is this world coming to? We see perversion and corruption and all kinds of things around us. And sometimes we don't know what to think. Sometimes we don't know how to feel about things. What is this world coming to? Well, the book of Revelation is the answer to that question. The book of Revelation is the rest of the story. It does tell us this is what the world is coming to. And as we move into chapter 16 this morning, we're winding down the seven years of tribulation. Tribulation because humanity overall had rejected and will reject Christ. Gentiles and Jews will face judgment during this period. The church has been taken out. The church up until chapter 3 is no longer mentioned in chapters 4 and following in the rest of the book. The church has been taken up, taken to glory. And yes, in glory the church will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we won't be finished either. But while that's going on in heaven as we are on earth... We've seen ever since chapter 6, all the way through now, waves and waves of judgment from God. God brought seven sealed judgments, and when those seals were broken, things occurred. After the seven seals were seven trumpets that brought even more judgment And now as we approach chapter 16, we see the last series of seven judgments, seven bowls. Or if you have the old King James, vials. But bowls is a a better translation. And it is these last bowls where God finally pours out His wrath on a world that has rejected Him. And yes, these are difficult passages to read. And these are difficult passages to teach and to preach. Difficult because we don't like the message. We don't want to hear about God's judgment. We don't want to hear about God's justice. We don't want to hear about that. It's unpleasant. And it should be. Rightly so. But the reality is we will not understand Scripture. We will not understand not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, not just Revelation, but the entire Bible. We will not be able to understand these things. We will not be able to get the messages from these things. And more often than not, it's because we have not come to terms with the nature of God. And the nature of God, the two main characteristics of God, which never change, because God never changes, are the fact that God, yes, is love. And God's love is is on display whenever you see the cross of Christ. 
sacrificial love for you and for me and for everyone. We saw in Sunday school how passionate God is about the lost. How passionate God is to seek out those who don't know him, no matter who they are or what they've done. That is the love of God. And we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, God constantly reaching down to the people to give them another chance, to give them another opportunity, to beg them to turn to him and come home. But God is also just. And because God is perfection and because God is life itself, he cannot tolerate sin. And it must be judged. And again, if you want to see the aspect of God's justice, look again at the cross. Because not only was God's love portrayed on the cross through the death of Christ, but God's justice and judgment was portrayed because Christ endured brutality and agony for our sake. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. Jesus died and paid for our sin, as we will see in just a moment. But as we unlock chapter 16, it's, it's rather lengthy and full. We're going to try to get through it as quickly as we can because much of it is self-explanatory. That's the beauty of Scripture. But we're going to see how in the light of severe judgment, in the light of the on-display reality of God, humanity still rejects Him. Humanity still turns from Him. Again, Christ displayed the nature of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, you know, what is this world coming to? Well, it depends. If you're broken and burdened, lost and struggling, if you come to faith in Christ, you can be saved from that. If you come to faith in Christ, your eternity is sealed. We come to him as, as the prodigal son came to the father broken and burdened. He came and said, I'm not worthy to be your son. I don't deserve anything but to be a servant. That's, that's what salvation is. We come to Christ saying, I'm not worthy of you, God. None of us are. No amount of religion, no amount of reformation can make us good enough for heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. We are not. We're flawed. We're broken. We're sinful. That's why Jesus came and died on that cross. He died there, and when he died there, he took your sin, my sin, off of us and laid them upon himself, and he paid that sin death. He received the wages of sin in death. Ironically, he had never done anything wrong. He wasn't paying for his own sin because he had none. He was paying for your sin and my sin. And there, as he hung upon the cross, he said this, in John 19, 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, they gave him that to try to alleviate his thirst and to mock him to some extent. As he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. Sin had been positionally and ultimately defeated. Salvation had been bought and paid for. As a matter of fact, it is finished in the Greek totelestai. It is what you would stamp on a bill once it was paid. Paid in full is what it literally means. It is finished. It's done. Your salvation, my salvation, has been bought and paid for. Unfortunately, far too many people who call themselves Christians think you get saved on the layaway plan. 
They don't have that anymore for those of you who are a little younger than I am. Back when I was a kid, if I wanted a toy and my mom and dad couldn't afford it, they would put it on layaway. They would pay for some of it and some of it and some of it until finally they got it paid off. They could go get it out. We do that differently now. We buy it and then pay it off. That's called debt, okay? But he didn't pay it in installments, nor do you and I have to make payments for our salvation. It's paid for. Amen? And if you're here and you don't know Christ, you can have salvation today. You can be sure of going to heaven today because it is finished. It says, he said, it is finished. And having and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He died. That's the rest of that story. Salvation's story has already been written. But there are those who continue to reject Christ despite that. Despite the fact that instead of being a religion, Christianity is a relationship, heaven is free. People say, oh, you're an easy believist. Yeah, what is hard believism? Yes, I, salvation is free. It's been paid for. You, it's not, listen, it's not easy for many people to abandon their pride and cast their faith on Christ. The reason why is because as human beings, we're stubborn. We're stubborn. We're going to do it our way, God. Buying and paying for my sins, that's too easy. It can't be that easy. There's something that I must do. That's what we say to ourselves or that's what we say to God. Or we say, no, I'm just going to reject God completely because after all, I'm smarter than the eternal creator. And we become stubborn. And that's why that part of the story isn't quite finished yet. As we read the book of Revelation when you look up stubborn in the dictionary, I went to the uh, freedictionary.com, although I've looked at Webster's and every other dictionary as I was digging around, and they all basically say the same thing. Basically, they define stubborn this way. Stubborn is refusing to change one's mind or course of action despite pressure to do so. You know, it's funny as I look out on this group this morning, when I read that definition, y'all started looking at each other. See, that's you he's talking about. He's talking about you, you know. Notice that phrase, refusing to change one's mind. I want you to keep that phrase in your mind. It goes on to define it this way, characterized by a refusal to change one's mind. It repeated that in this definition or course of action. Dogged or persistent. See, this is what goes on in the human heart because we are filled with self. That's what happened in the fall. God said you could eat of all the trees in the garden to Adam and Eve, but not one. Just don't eat this one. Because the moment you do, you will die. And the devil came along, slithered up to them, and said, did God really say that? God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. And suddenly pride lifted its ugly head. People say, what was the first sin? What's the, what, what's the main sin? Pride. putting ourselves in the place of God instead of focusing on God as the center of our universe. We make ourselves the center of our universe. And when God comes in to tell us better, we feel like God is wrong. He's contradicting me. After all, I know that that can't be right. The Bible was written by men. They're no better or worse than I am. And we come up with all sorts of lame excuses. The reality is it's stubbornness. 
We refuse to change our mind. Again, keep that phrase in mind, changing our mind. And that's what's going on over the pages of Revelation on this planet during this tribulation period. God must judge the, the people who have rejected him. God must judge. It's part of his nature, the lost. And this lost will include Jews and Gentiles alike who have rejected Christ. Now, as we saw, people will get saved during the tribulation period. God is going to send out evangelists to share the gospel. People will get saved. And even as far back as chapters 14 and 15, we see God still proclaiming the gospel, the good news. Begging people to change their minds and come to him. Even in the midst of the judgment, because God loves this world so much. In Revelation chapter 16, we see the last series of judgments, seven bowls that pour out the wrath of God. We're going to tick through those this morning, and I want you to notice one theme as we go through these that keeps coming up, this one perversion that keeps coming up. And as we jump into chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says this, John said, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, the heavenly temple of God, saying to the seven angels, you remember them, they were given these bowls of God's judgment, saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Yes, God is going to judge the earth. And while this is unpleasant, you and I need to mind this for the truth that God wants not only the people in the future to see, but what, what he wants us to see as well. So we begin with the first bowl judgment as we pick this up. The first judgment bowl, and we see the place that is poured out on the earth. Look what it says. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had, mark, who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So that first bowl and the place of its, of its execution was on the earth itself. And you remember back in chapter 13 where it talked about those who had rejected God and began to honor the despot, the tyrant known as the Antichrist or the beast. And they took his mark represented by the 666. And we, ought, we, we mentioned that. We're not sure exactly what that means. But whatever it means, it elevates humanity to a place higher than humanity should be elevated. And they will take this mark in their right hand or in their forehead, signifying their final rejection of God and their final enslavement to the materialism of this world. Well, God is going to judge and bring this bowl of judgment, this, this vial of judgment to come. Horrible malignant sores will break out on those who have received this mark. Some Bible scholars believe that perhaps where the marks are received will boil and turn into horrible sores on the hand or the forehead. I don't know. It doesn't say that specifically. But nonetheless, God is going to let him, uh, the humanity, uh, people in humanity know that that was not the right way to go. The second bowl or the second bowl of judgment we see in verse 3. Then the angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. So we come to that second bowl of judgment and the place where it is poured out is upon the seas and the waters, the punishment, the waters became as blood. 
killing all life in them. You'll see something as we go through this, that many of these judgments mirror or echo the plagues that, that came to Egypt when, when Moses was trying to lead the people of Israel out. And one of those things was when the water turned to blood. You say, how can that happen? Well, as I told you before, I grew up in Tampa. I lived 10 minutes from Tampa Bay. We had a boat growing up. We'd go out in the bay all the time. We'd camp out on islands. We'd park in a sandbar or, or the middle of the bay and fish. But I remember as I was growing up, there were certain seasons where red tide came in. And I meant to put a picture up there, but I didn't get to get it done. But if you go online and Google, for instance, Tampa Bay red tide, you will then see pictures of the water literally looking blood red in some places. And I remember this. I remember going across Gandy Bridge between Tampa and St. Petersburg and seeing Tyson Beach and the different ports there red as, as red can be. And for a season, we could not go out on the boat and fish there. We could not swim at the beaches there. And you would see pictures and hear news reports of dead fish being, being put on the shore because they would just wash up from this red tide. They kept telling people, do not fish in this part of Tampa Bay. And if you fish, do not eat the fish. You know, this was going on. And this wasn't even caused by man. This was just a natural occurrence. The red tide was caused by enzymes that would come in. And literally, they would turn the water in many places either a dark brownish or a blood red color, depending upon how thick it was. And I just remember that. It used to break my heart because as a kid, you wanted to go out and fish and swim and do all that stuff. So we'd have to drive an hour and go to the Gulf. Imagine the entire planet overcome with a red tide where every living thing in all the seas of the earth perishes as God pours out his wrath. We continue as we look at the third judgment. We go down to verse 4. Then the angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So not only were the salt water areas affected, but now God pours out his wrath on the fresh water of the planet. The springs, the lakes, the rivers. I've never actually heard, and if you have, you can let me know. You can correct me if there's ever a red tide there. I don't think so. But imagine all the fresh water. This happened in Egypt, by the way, when God brought the plagues against the Egyptians because the Pharaoh would not let God's people go. Imagine the entire planet's fresh water supply being tainted this way. Why would God do that? Well, verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. That's the eternality of God. Because you have judged. In other words, the angels proclaim the rightness of God to bring this judgment. Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink for this is their due. And so as we look at this, we see the place is the fresh water supply, and it turned and became blood. And the angels proclaim this. The angel now announces the reason for this, namely, to avenge the blood of the martyrs. Ever since Cain was killed, or ever since Cain killed Abel, rather, the people of God have suffered persecution. As the prophets were raised to minister to the nation of Israel, in Hebrews 11, you can read about the fate of many of those prophets 
Many of those prophets killed and destroyed. Isaiah, the prophet, cut in half while he was still alive, according to Jewish tradition. And then as the church rose up, the church came under vile persecution in its early stages. And over the last 2,000 years, the men and women of God and children have died simply for the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even today, in China, Indonesia, and in other parts of the world, Christians are still dying for the faith. In our little bubble of America, we don't see that much. The news doesn't report it that much. But I recommend looking at information from the voice of the martyrs. You will find out what's going on in the world. Because that organization tracks the martyrdom of modern day men and women and children who die simply because they want to communicate the love of Jesus. It's still going on. And God avenges this by taking the waters and turning them into blood. That is the proclamation of the third judgment bowl. We'll continue on. The fourth judgment. Oh, he finishes up verse 7 saying, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so. Remember, that's where the voices of the martyrs were echoing from earlier in the book of Revelation. Even so, Lord God, almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You remember back in 7 and 8, they wondered, God, when are you going to avenge us? Here it is. Let's go to the fourth bowl of judgment. Verse 8. The fourth bowl, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed, here comes, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. And notice this last statement. And they did not repent and give him the glory. Global warming is a big major issue today. And depending on whether or not you receive that or reject it, one day the world will be, will be warmed. But it will actually be a judgment of God. Yes, until then we are to be good managers and stewards of this planet. We should strive to make sure that we breathe clean air, that we drink clean water, that our areas that we live in and work in and play in are clean and clutter and litter free. We should be good stewards of the planet because that's what God told us to do in Genesis chapter 1. He left us here to manage his property. This world belongs to him. He made it. You say, Pastor, are you one of those wacky environmentalists? No, I'm a Christian who believes the environment ought to be taken care of as God proclaimed. And as far as global warming is concerned, yes, it will come, but it's not going to be man-made. It's going to be God-made. And this is it. So as we see this bowl here, this fourth bowl of judgment, we see the place it's poured out onto the sun and it gives the sun intense heat. The punishment will be the scorching heat. And notice the perversion here. And again, this is the phrase, this is the theme that I want you to listen for. Everyone responds to this plague by how? Cursing God and refusing to repent. What does that word repent mean? Well, it's one of the most confused words in theology today. It's unfortunate that this word repent is a holdover from the Elizabethan translation in the New King James. The word repent, when you see it in the Old Testament, means to regret. And it should be translated to regret or rethink. In the New Testament, the word repent literally means change your mind. 
The word is used in the Greek, metanoia. Meta means change. Noia is, is, is the Greek word that refers to mind. And it's different declensions, different uh, grammatical usages, but each time it's the root metanoia, change your mind. That's what the word repent means. It does not mean turn from sin. I hear people say, you got to repent. Repent means turn from sin. No, it doesn't mean turn from sin. Reason, because you and I can't turn from sin without first trusting Christ as our Savior. Without His enabling and empowering Spirit in our lives, we cannot turn from sin. And here's the thing, if we can turn from sin, ultimately, why would we need a Savior to save us from it? Imagine drowning in the water. Imagine going out to Lake Norman or out to Myrtle Beach and you're drowning and you're being overcome by the water and the lifeguard sitting on his or her post says, hey, you need to turn from that water while you drown in the water. No, if you're drowning, you need somebody to come and what? Get you out of the water. To save you out of the water. That's what Jesus did. Yes, we should constantly be turning away from sin, choosing against sin. But ultimately, because we are sinful, we can't completely turn from sin. We need to be saved out of our sin. And that's why Jesus comes and he took on human flesh and lived among sinful people. And he draws us out when we trust him. But yet, even though the world at this time and this future event sees over and over these miraculous divine happenings and interventions and spectacles, even when they know that this is God bringing judgment against them, over and over they still what? Curse God and refuse to change their mind. It harkens back to the children of Israel when they saw him part the Red Sea and, and, and send the plagues and do all the miraculous things he did in the Old Testament. And many of God's people, or supposedly God's people, turned their backs on him. Stubbornness. Stubbornness. As we continue on this morning. What about the fifth bowl of judgment? It says in verse 10, Then the angel poured out his bowl, the fifth angel, on the throne of the beast in the capital of the Antichrist. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven. There it is again. Because of the, their pains and of their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Didn't change their mind concerning the things that they had done. So the place there poured out on the throne, the very, the very center of the godless world system that's coming. And the entire kingdom of the beast has been plunged into darkness. Darkness that it's so dark, there's no light anywhere. I'm a person, I'm a light sleeper. And when I go to bed at night, I like it pitch black. Anybody like that? I like the room to be pitch black. It drives me nuts because we have a little TV in our bedroom and we have a little uh, uh, DVD or something in there. And I can't even stand because the little blue light on that blinks. Yes, I'm nuts. Okay, I get that. But there are times I have to put a towel over that or something over that because that little bit of light drives me nuts. I want it pitch black. But I also want the sun to rise in the morning. You know, even at the darkest in our world, we still have light. My house, we've been suffering electrical issues this week. Our old electrical panel has decided to give up the ghost. 
We have electricity, but, uh, but Brother Rick McDaniel, who is a genius, and Eddie Key, and I've had all these guys out there looking at it, and Rick stuck a stick in it. That's Southern ingenuity right there. And we have electricity until the stick breaks. We've ordered a part. We're waiting on it to get here. When it does, the electrician will plug it in. We can take the stick out, and I'm going to frame the stick. But even when the stick breaks and we have no end, I have a phone with a, with a flashlight on it. We've got candles. We've got flashlights. And during the day, the sun comes in. Imagine darkness 24 hours a day when there is not even a pinprick of light. That is frightening. And I can see how that can even be emotionally painful. You and I don't understand that because we've never had that happen. And again, the perversion. Once again, the people refuse to repent or change their minds. We come to the sixth plague in verse 12. This is hard to listen to, isn't it? It's hard to preach. I'd rather be preaching the Sermon on the Mount where he's encouraging and giving blessing. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But we have to see the full picture of God and his nature. Verse 12, the sixth angel of God, the sixth angel rather, poured out his bowl on the great river, the river Euphrates. Euphrates is sort of the demarcation line between uh, the Middle East and the Far East, or the Middle East of Israel and the rest of the, uh, of the, rest of the Middle East. It's always been considered in Scripture that, that place. And so this bowl was poured out in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I'll understand this. Parts of the, uh, the river Euphrates are dry now because they're diverting that water for irrigation in the Middle East today. I understand that. But it still creates a bit of a barrier. One day, God is just going to dry it up and make the way. Notice what he says. And I saw three unclean spirits, demonic spirits like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the dragon representative of Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast, the, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, that anti-Holy Spirit, you have the unholy trinity read out right here. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to battle, to a battle of that great day, uh, to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. So... The demonic hosts are, are hyping the world up, getting the world ready to come together in a, the greatest world war that humanity will ever see. Verse 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed. Jesus stops here. He says, behold, I am coming as a thief. Because this portion of these bowls, this sixth bowl of judgment that he's pouring out, which will gather together all of the races of humanity for one last final world war. And as we'll see as we move into chapter 19 in a couple of weeks, then Christ comes. They will be battling among themselves and then suddenly in the air they'll see Jesus and the saints coming and they'll turn their attention from each other and begin firing at him. That's why he says, behold, I am coming as a thief. They won't expect it. Thieves, you don't expect thieves. And this is the one of the Beatitudes in Revelation. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In other words, those who stay faithful to Christ, those who stay faithful fidelity morally, spiritually, biblically, 
letting God clothe them in the garment of righteousness. They will be blessed. Yes, when Christ comes back, there will be two groups that meet him. The group of godless warring nations and the remnant of the saints that will still be alive during this time. And notice in verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. You've heard of that great battle. Oh, the battle of Armageddon. One day the battle, this is it. The battle of Armageddon, according to scripture, will come at the very end of the tribulation period. Where the demons of hell will stir up the earth and bring the people together for a final world war that will make World Wars I and II look like party time. And there'll be a tremendous fight and Christ will come and put an end to it. Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo, or the, the area of rendezvous. As a matter of fact, you can go to Megiddo and there's a very flat plain there in the Middle East where it can be very easily conceived of the armies of the world converging on that spot. As a matter of fact, that area in the Middle East where Israel is and so forth is the geo, geographic center of the planet, strangely enough. So as we get to that last battle, that sixth bowl, we see the place it will be poured out upon the great river Euphrates, drying up, opening the way for those kings of the east to come. The kings of the west will come. The kings of the north and south will come. And the demons will deceive them and lead them east to march against the armies westward, and Euphrates will prepare for Armageddon. But there is a promise in the middle of that. See, even in the middle of this, God says, there's a blessing promised to those who prepare their hearts for Christ's return. But we still have one more bowl, and this is the seventh bowl, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven and from the throne, look at this, saying, It is done. Where did we hear a similar phrase to that? Back in John 19. When God was displaying his ultimate love for humanity... When he had finally paid sin's debt in full, Jesus shouted just before he gave up his spirit, It is finished. Salvation has been won for all humanity, past, present, and future. And the only way you and I need to access this is by trust and by faith. What about those who reject Christ? Well, now the judgments that we see wave after wave, this last bowl finishes it. It is done. It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as, not, has, has, as has not occurred since there, there were men or humanities, human beings on the earth. Verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts. This capital city, this Babylon would be just rocked and split by this. The capital of the spirit, or rather the Antichrist. Babylon has been a reference to the ungodly world empires ever since Babylon was the original ungodly world empire. As to what specific modern city this speaks to, we don't know. Nonetheless, wherever the Antichrist sets up his capital, this will be split into three parts. And the cities of the nation fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her 
to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent or nearly a hundred pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, and notice, they blasphemed him. Because of this plague, since that plague was exceedingly great. So in this last seventh bowl of judgment, this is poured into the air. As the world re, re, just, just royals in warfare and, and all of these things, it's going to have an effect on the entire planet. And there will be earthquakes the seas have been ruined. The fresh water has been ruined. Everybody will blame each other for that and then they'll collectively blame God. And there will be earthquakes and, and cities will fall, fall. Islands will fall. That's why later in the book of Revelation, chapters 20 through 22, we see a revision, a renewal of the planet Earth because it's necessary. But now it is done. In chapter 17, 18, we'll look more detailed into this Babylon, this world Gentile ungodly empire, and take some details out of it. But as the overall viewpoint we're getting of the last bit of the tribulation period, that final bowl, that seventh bowl, God's wrath against humanity, just like his love for humanity was completed on the cross, God's judgment against humanity will be completed at that seventh bowl, just as Jesus is getting ready to come back bodily to the earth. It's a phenomenally dramatic thing, and it will happen. We see the punishment in that. We see history's greatest earthquake occurs. Babylon is split into three parts. The great cities of the world collapse. Islands vanish. Mountains fall. Hailstones, 75 to 100 pounds, rain. But people still refuse to repent and change their minds to God. But it is done. It is done. The judgments are over. And Jesus will come back, as we will see soon, and set up his kingdom. Again, the theme running through that is humanity's unwillingness to change their mind and turn to God. John Walford, the great scholar, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Revelation scholar, he says this, he says, the utter perversity and depravity of human nature, which will reject the sovereignty of God in the face of such overwhelming evidence. You want evidence for God? They will literally see the wrath and power of God. This confirms that even the, the lake of fire, the ultimate thing we refer to as hell, will not produce repentance on their part or on the part of those who have hardened their hearts against the grace of God. There will be people and are people who reject God and there is nothing that is going to change their mind. Dr. Frank Turek, who goes to college campuses demonstrating the reality of God, the, the veracity of Scripture and the truth of Christianity. One of the first things he asks before he stands in front of the college students and as he gets ready to address them, he says, if I can prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, how many of y'all would still reject him? And he says the majority of the hands go up in the audience. Human pride, human stubbornness. 
the hardening of the human heart. This is not just a new thing. It happened in the book of Joshua. As God redeemed children of Israel out of Egypt, after experiencing similar plagues, and after God redeemed and delivered his people, they came to the promised land, and Joshua, just before he died, they also had to make a choice. And he stood before them as an old man. He was getting ready to die and pass the torch. And in Joshua chapter 24, at the end of the book, he says this. And it see, he says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. In other words, if you just refuse to serve the Lord, if you're not going to do it, then he said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And this is the ultimate choice of humanity. This is your choice today. This is my choice. This is the same choice that these people are going to have during the tribulation period. It is the same choice that you and I have today. Now, we're not seeing phenomenal uh, judgment and so forth, but this is the choice nonetheless. He says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, referring to the river Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you now dwell. But this is what Joshua said, and this is what God is looking for. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what? In all the tribulation judgments, that is what God wanted. If humanity had just said, we will serve the Lord, Revelation would read differently. Because God is all-knowing. He knows what's coming. So here's the thing that you and I need to ask ourselves. Where are we at as far as the Lord is concerned? Are we still stubborn? And I'm not just thinking about unbelievers. I'm thinking about Christians who have not yet allowed God to take their life completely. To be the Lord over their life. God is asking us this morning, who will we serve? And if we choose against God, we're, we're going to face the tribulation of just life without him. Because there are curses and blessings. Blessings come when we honor him. Curses come when we struggle because we, we're not living by the laws and statutes that he set down. After all, he's the creator. He knows what's best. So the final word is, are we going to be prideful and self-oriented? Refuse and shake our fists at God? Or are we going to repent, change our minds, and walk with Him, honor Him, and live for Him? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Is your answer going to be, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Standing together, heads are bowed. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.